Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The real estate starts now. In today's episode, Shark Tank, we revisit the intersection between real estate and aquatic conservation. We're excited to welcome back Bill McKeever, an ocean environmentalist, documentary filmmaker, and author. Bill was a well-regarded Wall Street analyst before turning his focus towards ocean conservation. He has produced Emperors of the Deep, a documentary that takes us into the world of sharks, published a similar titled book, and is now focused on education, reef creation, and offshore farming. Bill is the founder of Safeguard of the Seas, a nonprofit whose mission is to educate the public about the threats to the oceans and their wildlife through books and film. Bill, welcome back to the show. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Alex and Jamie. Great to be back with you guys. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I used to uh, to work on Wall Street. Um, you know, after I grew up around Philadelphia, went to the beaches in New Jersey. Uh, over the years and uh, always loved the ocean. And I've been working uh, for about 20 years and I stumbled on this shark tournament. And as I learned about these tournaments where they massacre sharks, I started to get involved in trying to do something to stop it. And that led me down the road of learning about sharks in the ocean and conservation. And I ended up quitting my job and I moved full time into ocean conservation and uh, I love it. There's so many things that I'm uncovering and, and I am on a mission to, to help protect the oceans because they're just so valuable. So Bill, you came on the show a little bit less than a year ago and you talked to us about ocean conservation and the land under the sea, which, which was fascinating. And today we're talking about sharks, which I think everyone uh, is everyone's favorite topic basically. So tell us about the work that you've done around sharks, I believe you did a movie on it and you have a book ad on it. Tell us a bit about your point of view on sharks. Yeah, great. That's a great question because, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are, are still influenced by uh, the movie Jaws. And uh, when I stumbled on the shark tournament and I started to do my research and I talked to scientists and I dove with sharks all over the world, I realized that the perception of sharks is just based completely on myth and untruths. And in a world where there's a blur between truth and, and lies, I think it's important for people to understand the real truth about sharks. So that's my mission in my book, Emperors of the Deep, the Shark, and the film, the documentary film of the same name, Emperors of the Deep. And that's to, to get the word out that one, number one, is that uh, sharks are not these uh, man-eaters that we have to worry about. Yeah, Bill, remind us, what's the statistic? Remind us about that, that big statistic that everybody is so stunned when I mentioned about killing uh, us killing them versus them killing us. Yeah, that, that's a great point. You know, it, it's, it's not that we should be afraid of the sharks. The sharks should be afraid of us because every year, 100 million sharks are killed. And most of that is for shark fin soup, but sharks are killed for their meat. They're killed to make... Uh, women's purses, they're, they're killed uh, to make uh, cosmetics, lipstick, vitamins. It's an utter massacre. And um, you, you can't do that with an apex predator without having consequences. And just the other side of that is, I think only maybe 10 people a year are killed by sharks or something like that? 
It's actually less than that, Jamie. It's uh, on average about five people a year around the world uh, are killed by sharks. And in the United States, um, it's very rare to have a death a year. It's maybe half a death a year. And this year, 21, there have been no deaths. And so it's a, it's a case where, again, if you look at the, uh, the attacks that are out there, the deaths, it's basically non-existent. And what's what, what's half a death? Do you like to come back the next year and get back in the water so they can finish it up? I mean, <laughs> half a death. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so you get some years like this year where nobody dies, and then the next year there may be a death. And uh, like what happened in 2020, where up in Cape Cod there was a, a swimmer who went off, unfortunately ran into a great white shark, and that was it. So over a two-year period you have one death so obviously you know the math so that's that's what we're looking at um and and around the world the number varies a little bit uh year to year but that's just a statistical aberration you know i i generally don't don't look at statistics when it comes to things like um predators right i think i think for the most part uh it doesn't really matter how many people they they kill it is just they're just scary Right. I can't I can't remember the last time someone died from a spider bite, but people still hate spiders. And if you tell someone there's a cave of spiders or a beach full of spiders, people just won't go, regardless if they're poisonous or not. So I think that people just don't want to be around sharks, um, regardless of whether they got bit by it or die from it. I think people have a, have a inherent fear of it, which is probably one of the reasons why um, Jaws uh, did, did so well. But I think, you know, it's not really difficult to, to understand the connection between sharks and the built world, you know, especially when you understand how important sharks are in the underwater ecosystem, right? If you think about whether or not we as humans are afraid of sharks, uh, it's how important fundamental sharks are within the, within the population of the seas, right? You know, on one hand, you've got the pop fish population control, you know, so less sharks, more fish, and ultimately more problems. Um, then you have vacation population control, more sharks, less people, <laughs> more problems with the impact to cities, impact to, um, to vacation properties, um, more or less uh, impact to a lot of things. So I think that when we, when we open the aperture a bit and talk about the importance of sharks overall, it gets really interesting and the importance of conservation become even more important and more relevant for, for, for more people. So tell us a little bit about uh, how... Uh, you're looking or reframing the conversation around conservation for sharks. Yeah, so I, I think if you if you look at uh, the importance of sharks in the marine ecosystem, it's it's a difficult answer, uh, just because in virtually every ecosystem in the ocean where ocean, where sharks are, and that's virtually everywhere on the, in the on the planet, sharks play a key role. So the question becomes, where does one start describing the importance uh, of sharks? And I'll just take a, a simple example with uh, coral reefs. And coral reefs are very important, even though they represent about 20% of the ocean floor, they're responsible for essentially 70% of the sea life in the ocean. The reefs are where the, the fish congregate, they can hide. Uh, so there are lots of little fish, and then the big fish are there to eat the little fish. So it's an incredibly productive marine ecosystem. And the sharks sit at the top as the, as the emperors, if you will, managing it. You know, keep in mind, a reef has no police, no courts, and yet it functions completely on its own. And the way that works is that 
the sharks make sure that there is no one species or group of, of species that monopolize all the resources. They prevent that from happening by being able to make sure there's a broad number of species using the, the reef's resources. So let me give you a, a, a quick example. Yeah, how do they do that exactly? Give us an example. Yeah, so uh, so every, everything on the reef is interconnected and, and plays a role from the tiny little wrasse fish that, that clean the fish and take off parasites to, to the big sharks. Now, in that uh, group are parrotfish. Uh, parrotfish are, uh, as, you, as the name says, they're brightly colored on their scales. They have a beak. And what they do is uh, chip away on the reef and they eat the algae. If the algae was not chipped away, it would literally grow out of control and smother the reef and kill it. So when you take sharks out, there are lots of creatures that like to eat parrotfish. They're nice and tasty and big and, and uh, mid-level predators like barracudas and groupers would come in and eat, eat all the parrotfish. And if the parrotfish are gone, again, that means the reef is gonna die. And this actually happened in Australia. And they did, did, a, did a, a report about this. And so what the sharks do is that they make sure that those various predators like groupers and barracudas are kept at sustained levels so that they don't turn the whole system inside out. So that's their job is to eat the uh, predators and make sure that there is a balance and that the interconnection among all the fish stays in place. That sounds like an urban planner, actually. I just imagine um, someone- Sounds in, like a king. <laughs> it sounds like someone in, you know, in New York City just sort of thinking about the relationships between sanitation and consumption and, and all of that. And I think you know, we, we, we have a tendency to not think about um, the, the, the impacts of all of these components because you know, we want to see reefs. You know, so from when I vacation, I want to see reefs so I can, I can scuba uh, or snorkel. I want to see fish so that I can just feel good about myself. Uh, and I don't want to see sharks because I want to be able to do all those things um, safely and or without fear. Again, the next day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, I think that we um, as humans in a way need to really think about what business we have uh, of, an, of enjoying and appreciating or exploring the underwater depths um, in light of, of, of these sharks, we, either we have to live with that or we have to just kind of leave the sharks to do their thing. You know, where, 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 where do humans come into this and how do we engage? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Alex. And uh, I, think, I think if we step back and look at humans and their impact on the marine ecosystem, um, they've obviously, humans have had a tremendous impact on it. And it's unfortunately been very bad for the oceans because humans have no respect for the fact that these are systems that are interconnected and there are consequences to overfishing. There are consequences to taking out too many resources and it destroys the system, which in turn then is bad for people because if we want to enjoy the oceans, if we want to uh, have fish for our food, and, and obviously that's healthy for us, we have to do what we can to maintain it. 
And sadly, people don't realize that you have a food pyramid out there in, in the ocean. And when you disrupt it, it's a disaster. Now, you can get away with working and chipping away at, at the middle parts of the food pyramid. But when you take out the top and the bottom, that's when the entire system will collapse. And, and we're coming dangerously close to doing that. With 100 million sharks taken out every year, there are some regions uh, of, of the world where the sharks are gone, reef systems are in complete disarray. And then those other impacts that, that we haven't talked about, and it's in my book, Emperors of the Deep, the Shark, and I go into all kinds of explanation uh, that they are so important for us. Bill, talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with all the fishing that goes on out in the Pacific Ocean. I think that's where most of it is. Um, uh, and how those nets are, are, are detrimental to what's going on with the shark population. Yeah, the, the fishing that goes out on the high seas, um, you know, Americans and many people just have no idea what's going on out there. And uh, the primary goal of the fishing fleets out there on the Pacific Ocean, and they're mostly Asian, is they're catching tuna to uh, provide product for Americans as, as well as Europeans and, and, the, and the rest of the world. Now, the fishing that's going on out there and for some species, I believe is over-exploitation. Uh, bluefin tuna are in serious trouble. Many species of tuna, I, I think, are being over-exploited. And it's being done because the technology that man has created uh, gives us such power to remove tons, millions of tons of these fish. Um, and there are several methodologies. There's uh, purse seining, which is, as the name implies, you take a big net or a purse, uh, stitch it together and pull out literally uh, schools of millions of fish. And the same thing happens with something called long line fishing. And when I first heard about this, I was actually horrified it's a case where a, a single vessel will put out one line that can be 100 to 150 miles long. And at intervals of 10 feet, there's a baited hook. And so they'll let this line uh, soak out there in the ocean for a day or two, haul it in, and they catch virtually everything you can imagine. Uh, sea turtles and seabirds. And of course, uh, they're caught on these lines and they die literally hundreds of thousands of these animals die and are, are thrown away for nothing. And of course they do get tuna, but for every 10 tuna they catch, they catch five sharks and they could catch, let those sharks go, but they don't want to because they know they can fin those sharks and sell the fins to the Chinese market for soup. And uh, the brutality on the high seas these sharks are, are often finned alive and their bodies are thrown back into the water while they're still alive and they just sink to the, to the bottom and asphyxiate to death. It's a horrible death. And it's, uh, it's just uh, horrible to think about. Well, you know, it sounds like the, the, those, um, those lines are weapons of mass destruction for the aquatic ecosystem. Uh, and I know that um, there are places uh, that are more exploited than others, um, obviously in parts of, of Africa where, where large um, communities uh, depend on fishing. And, and so they're, they're deprived of their livelihood and because of the ecosystems uh, being destroyed in those parts, parts of the world. 
But earlier you mentioned uh, the pyramid, and I want to talk a little bit about that. There is, you mentioned the top and the bottom of the pyramid. And I, and I want to get into the bottom, but before I do, um, within the top of that pyramid where sharks live, there are, you mentioned that there are places where the sharks disappeared. And I, I've particularly, I have noticed that, and I was thinking about going down to, um, to, to, uh, to South Africa uh, to dive with the sharks, actually go in, in a cage and um, watch and great white sharks eat large pieces of meat in front of me. And I thought that would be really cool. <laughs> that would be cool. And it'd be a, it'd be a bucket list check, check mark that I would, I would tell my grandkids about. However, there's no sharks and I canceled my trip and thus the vacation set site and resort doesn't get my money. Uh, and I'm sure that's happening uh, for a lot of people, but we don't know why. I'm assuming that there's a reason for this. Do you have any insight? Um, yes, Alex, that, that's a great uh, question. And, uh, and I would just say, first of all, you're too young to have grandkids. So you don't have to worry about that for a while. <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway. The, yeah, the uh, when, I, when I was writing the book, um, I spent a great deal of time in in South Africa, and uh, sadly, um, while there are very good uh, scientific groups uh, advising the government, the government doesn't follow the advice of the scientists, and the government is a short term view of let's uh, generate opportunities, let's create jobs, let's provide exports, and so it is a country that hunts sharks by design and ships millions of tons of them to Australia uh, for various purposes. And uh, at the same time, the South African government authorized more longline fishing. Well, longline fishing, as I just dis discussed, is a disaster for sharks. And so what's happening is the shark populations have down, are down because of the very poor uh, regulatory policy of the South African government. This is a case where a country does not is not willing to recognize that you can't, the ocean is not an inexhaustible source of resources. There is a limit. And they went over that limit a long time ago. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, tell you a quick story. So they had a study, they wanted to do a study. They said, well, how many great whites do we have in South Africa? And they said, oh, we have about 2,000 so let's confirm that. So they went out and they took pictures of sharks on the surface. Now, why did they do that? Because they wanted to get a picture of the fin and they put that into a computer. Every fin of a shark is unique. Like our fingerprints, their fins are like their fingerprints. So they put this into a computer, took all these pictures. And after uh, a couple of years, they determined they only had 500 great whites left in South Africa. Now, this has been a couple of years since that study doesn't take much to realize that that number is down substantially and who knows what it is we don't know we don't know how many great whites are in the world so when you're when you're exploiting a, a resource like this it's it, it trouble speaking of tagging and the fins I know that one of the ways we've been trying to keep track of the great whites uh, to Alex's question um, is by tagging and, and following them. And I know that we've talked about in the past, you and I, Bill, that there are apps you can download on your computer and you can actually watch a lot of these great whites as they migrate up and down the East Coast in the summer. Uh, but recently I was reading that um, there are a lot more of them up and down the East Coast now, but at the same time that the tagging itself is bad. What, what's the story on all that? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, you raise a couple of good points. One is the sightings are up. And I guess that that gets back to our early discussion about that food pyramid. Uh, there's some changes going on there that we, we can talk about if, if you want. And, and two is that, um, you know, our technology advances, we're able to tag sharks and follow them and we're tagging a lot of sharks. But the way the tagging is done is detrimental to the sharks. And this actually, this is a, a new initiative for me. And I'm working with a, uh, with a shark scientist up at uh, Boston College. Um, he's a terrific scientist. He's uh, Harvard ed educated. And uh, his name is uh, Phil LaBelle, a terrific guy. And uh, his theory is, is that tagging sharks causes tremendous stress for the animal. And you can actually see on YouTube, when they catch the shark, they will literally drill a hole in the shark's fin and bolt a tag onto that fin. Well, you know, that, that thing is not coming off. And when you put a, a foreign object on an animal that's in the water, it's going to get algae growing on it, all kinds of barnacles, disease. And that animal is stressed by having to carry all that thing around and you can't get this off. So it's up for the rest of its life. So that's really bad for the sharks. And, and there are new tags that are, that are being developed that doesn't have that kind of impact. And so we need to step back and, and, and think about these tags. Number one, is it necessary? Are we really getting any new information? It's, yeah, it's interesting to see the sharks go up and down the coast, but you know, we know that now where they go. It's, it's not doing anything. It's harmful to the sharks. And two is we need to be smarter about tagging them and, and use studies that are gonna actually be productive. So tagging was sort of a, the new, new thing, of, uh, you know, a, a decade ago. Now it's very quickly devolving into one of these practices that uh, we're doing that's harming the sharks and the environment. I know I can, I understand that. It, it totally makes sense. I've never committed a crime, so I'm not quite sure what it's like to be um, under home arrest with a house bracelet, <laughs> but I'm sure I would feel uncomfortable wearing a bracelet around my ankle, let alone have something in my ear that I'm lugging around uh, like a shark, you know, uh, uh, on my day-to-day -day life. So I, I, I get it. I, I totally get how- to mention being embarrassed with it, with the other sharks. Yeah, yeah, they caught me. Oh, look at Bobby, who got tagged. <laughs> right, so, you know, to my earlier point, you know, there, in, that, in that pyramid, there is that, there's a top and there's the bottom. And so clearly the sharks are the top, they're the apex. Let's talk about the bottom of that food chain. Um, what, what sits at the bottom of which is the foundation for all of those things to, 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 to live and breathe? Is it, is it, is it the, the, the coral reef or, or, is it, or, or is it a fish? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And if you go down to the very bottom, it's plankton. Hmm. And, and plankton are microscopic animals. You go in the water, you can't see them, but uh, they are there. And uh, that feeds the entire marine ecosystem. If you take all the plankton, game over. Now, the next level up are technically zooplankton, which are also microscopic, but they're little creatures that eat the plankton, but they're a little bit bigger. And then the next group above that are what are called uh, forage fish. They're very small fish and they eat the zooplankton and, and the plankton. And then those forage fish are the food for the mid-level predators and then the apex predators at the very top. 
And those fish have a name, right, Bill? What, what, what they're here, at least in the United States, what do we, is that the Manhattan fish? Yes. So, so the, the, the Manhattan fish, what about the Bronx and Queens fish? Manhattan. <laughs> That'll be a new Probably name can't use them. that term because it has men in it, but Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, so the, the, the most populous of, of, the, of the forage fish are the Manhattan fish. And Manhattan fish are out there literally by the billions. And uh, there are other small uh, fish, uh, alewives, shad, herring, uh, the list goes on and on. But Manhattan are the, are the key ones. And um, they have gotten some protection in some areas because some states realize their importance. But there's some other places that don't. Uh, recognize their importance. And there are other countries that want to come to our country and exploit our resources. You know, we have, we're blessed in this country. We have two, actually three of the top fishing grounds in the world. Alaska's number one. Number two is uh, actually the, the uh, off of uh, Maine uh, and all the way down to, to Montauk. And then the Chesapeake Bay. So we are so, the oceans are so productive that uh, there are companies coming in and, and, and taking our assets from it. But, you know, that's another subject. So, so getting back to the pyramid, the pyramid, it's, it's the forage fish that likewise, you, you, if you let them survive, that helps the whole system. And earlier to your question, Alex, about people and their role, the best thing that people can do Get out of the way. Get out of the system. Let the system run itself. We don't have the knowledge, the consequential intelligence to manage all of this. And, and states that, that do, like uh, New York made some strides in Maine, and they saw an increase in their Manhattan population. Uh, you know, I saw, I saw actually the, the benefit personally. I've been going out to Long Island, and uh, I saw a lot of, lot of good things happening out there. Well, Bill, explain to our listeners what what would, do we use the Manhattan fish for? I don't think we eat the Manhattan fish. Why are they being fished? Yeah, so uh, so if you saw, it'd be unlikely to see a Manhattan fish. You might see them schooling, but they're 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 typically maybe a few inches long. Um, they don't have any teeth. Um, they're they're very oily. They they don't smell good. They don't taste good. So you're not going to eat one. You're not going to catch one with a with a rod and a reel. So their function out there is to is to feed uh, the the bigger fish, the predators, those fish that we do eat, like bluefish and striped bass and and uh, salmon and, and that sort of thing. So they play that that incredibly Im important role. And uh, I was just saying, my experience going out to Long Island over the summer, I've never seen whales breaching for the first time, and they're feeding off of these giant Manhattan schools that are finally out there <clears throat> and uh, dolphins and seeing those. Uh, and of course, sharks are, are coming back. So it's great for the system to, uh, when you protect these Manhattan. And sadly, uh, the Gulf of Mexico does not have any regulation on controlling how much Manhattan are taken out. And as I mentioned, the Chesapeake Bay, a Canadian company has come down here and are literally helping themselves to tons of Manhattan fish that's hurting America, that's hurting recreational fishermen.
you think one of the problems is, I mean, it's easy to uh, to get people involved in sharks and, and interested in sharks and their lives and what's going on and Shark Week and aquariums. It's because it's visible and you can see it and it's in the news. But uh, something like a, a, a forage fish that is maybe as important to the ecosystem, the opposite end of the pyramid, as Alex was saying, um, but because it's not known, it's not eaten, it's not used, it's not in aquariums, nobody cares. It's one of these things like we've talked about, Alex and I have talked about in these some podcasts in the past, that there are a lot of problems that you don't pay any attention to because it doesn't affect you. You don't see it, you don't hear it. Is that what's going on there? Well, you know, I would, I would, I would, I would jump in there to, 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 to that point, is that it may be not relevant for some people, but it could be relevant for others. I mean, when I hear about Manhattan, I... I immediately think about bait fish, right? and, and you know when you when you're going out, if you're in the Hamptons or wherever, you're gonna go some for some deep sea fishing or some some sea bass fishing or what have you. You're gonna throw a net, and you get these small little fish that just populate your boat, and then you put it at the end of a hook and you throw it in, and then you catch some sea bass, right? I mean, I feel like I feel like it is um, the one of the tools and mechanisms for fishermen to catch fish. So a lot of ways, if you lose this, I mean, the ecosystem runs deep, obviously, in the oceans, but also it affects people's livelihoods in some cases. And also at the same time, maybe um, it, it affects people's sport. Yeah. So um, I, I think that... Um I don't know if it's there. I'm trying to think. Is there a question to this, or, or is well, Menhaden used for? Is, is that is that one of the ways uh, those fish are used, like sardines or like bait and stuff like that? Is that possible that could be used? Yeah. So I, I think if if it look step, I think the, the the point that we're all making here is as, as you said, Jamie. It's it's you know, people can see it, understand it, they understand it better. Uh, for something like Menhaden, it's completely out of sight. If it's out of sight, it's it's out of mind. Unlike sharks, which are very visible and we see them on from the beach and they're in the news a lot, so people are going to get interested in it. Um, but with Menhaden and forage fish, um, the concept is is I think foreign uh, to most people. And you know, when those forage fish, uh, when they're caught, they're being turned into uh, cat food. They're being turned into um, fertilizer. So they'll take this incredibly valuable asset from the ocean and literally put it out on, on fields where there are plenty of substitutes. And um, they're used for fishing farms, salmon fishing farms, to, to feed the fish. So at least there's one use there involving the ocean. But, uh, but even there, the fish farming of salmon is very controversial. And as far as I've seen so far, there are more negatives than positives. So in, in essence, we're wasting this tremendous asset. We should let it alone and let the other fish in the ocean that feed off of Manhattan flourish. So let me just give you some examples of what this would mean for jobs and income. You could have a recreational fishermen going out there catching a lot more fish. That means you have more boats, more people having to manage those, maintain those boats and marinas, jobs around those marinas, people coming and staying in hotels so they can go fishing, all those jobs created. And, and that's just in the, uh, in, in the case of, uh, of, of what you're finding with recreational fishermen. Also think about the ecological benefit of Manhattan. They are the ocean's vacuum cleaner. They're the cleaners. Again, I said they're no teeth. So what they have are these special gills that process 
the water and take out that tiny plankton. So they are cleaning the ocean. You know, there was one scientist that said in the Chesapeake Bay that in the original, when the settlers first came here in the 1600s, the entire schools of Manhattan would clean the entire Chesapeake Bay in, 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 in 48 hours. There were so many of them. And that's why that water was so clear and clean. Think of the benefit to tourism from that. So the Menhaden are basically the Roombas of the ocean. Is that it? They just automatically just keep cleaning the floor. <laughs> you, know, you know, you'd mentioned earlier about sort of out of sight, out of mind. And as much as I love that, um, that the term, uh, I feel like it, it might, it, it's a, there's a unique angle to that in the, in the situ, in the ecosystem and the problems that we're facing in the sense that yeah, I think out of sight um, very much puts these issues on our mind, meaning to say that when we don't see sharks, that's when we think about them, really. Yeah, and, and we're, we're trying to tag them because we want to see them so that we can do something about it. So out of sight, out of mind, but in action. People don't really do anything uh, when, it, when, when, they don't, when it's not in their face. But at the same time, we think about it. We fear it. We, um, we prevent ourselves from, from facing it. And, and it's really about the fear of the unknown to a certain extent. So, so the, the, everything that's happening in the oceans um, the problems that we're seeing on the surface with sharks, the problems that we're seeing under the surface with the coral reefs, those are the things that we're thinking about a lot. But, we, but I think a lot of people just don't know what to do. And I, and I, you know, when it comes to sort of educating the population, uh, educating professionals about what can we do at the very basic level, I think those are the things that we, we, we kind of need to really talk more about, about how do we act to, to, to have peace of mind for our future, um, for our future food, but put on the table for the future of our civilizations and our communities. Yeah, that's a, a good point, Alex. Those are all valid points, Alex. Um, let's follow up on that, Bill. You started Safeguard the Seas, uh, a nonprofit uh, to actually educate and to help protect the oceans and aquatic life. Uh, and uh, uh, so tell us a bit about what you're doing there and uh, maybe a couple of little ideas that regular consumers like Alex and I and our listeners, what we should be doing in the store to perhaps do our, do our part to perhaps help the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you, Jamie, for bringing up Safeguard the Seas. Um, it's my nonprofit. Uh, started a couple of years ago. The focus um, initially is, has been on sharks. And uh, I, again, it's an educational um uh, nonprofit. And, and I want to tell people that you can make a difference. I mean, it sounds today like, you know, we're talking kind of doom and gloom, but I want to actually leave a positive message so people can do something about this. And your seafood choices are very important. So for example, if you want to eat uh, canned tuna, you may want to consider buying Polcott canned tuna. That's where one fisherman is catching one tuna at a time with one pole. There's no bycatch. There's no impact on sharks. When you bite into a tuna sandwich that's made from canned tuna that catches sharks on the high seas, for every 10 tuna uh, that went into that, that, that can, those cans, five sharks were killed. So be careful about what you buy. Number two is buy American seafood. Buy food that you know there are some decent regulations. When you're buying food, from foreign countries, you don't know the regulations, the environment that it came from. You know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of uh, farm products come from China, uh, tilapia in, in particular. 
I don't know about you, but I'd be a little careful about eating something like tilapia that's grown in China on farms that uh, aren't regulated. There's been all kinds of articles written about uh, perhaps those areas are maybe not uh, as, as professional as, as they should be. And um, so that's that's number two is is to buy uh, American uh, seafood. And then number three, what you can do is get involved with uh, legislation, get involved, join uh, join an NGO, I'll put a plug in for Safeguard the Seas, uh, follow Safeguard the Seas. Uh, we need legislation to stop the trading in, in shark fins. It's amazingly still legal in this country. It contributes to the to the problem of shark finning. Um, the uh, there's a there's a petition on my website that, that you can sign. And then also I'm getting involved now in protecting forage fish. Uh, I have a new initiative to help get legislation passed at the state level in Chesapeake Bay and in the Gulf of Mexico to protect Menhaden. And uh, my journey on that is, is just getting started. Well, Bill, all that sounds terrific. I, I want to take the, the moment to thank you for coming on again, talking about the importance of the ocean ecosystem and how it affects our everyday lives and what we can do and how we can help to keep it healthy and perennial. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Bill. And, and I can't wait to dig into your book, um, Emperors of the Deep, The Mysterious and Misunderstood World of the Shark. Um, it's a, it's, it looks like a going to be an interesting read. And I suggest anyone who's um, listening to the podcast, uh, go right ahead. It's available on, on amazon.com. So want to thank you again, Bill. Um, this was insightful, very informative, lots to learn, lots to still discover uh, about, about sharks and the world that we, that they live in, the world that we share. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to, to be with you and uh, hope to well be back on again. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.